0: My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. I'm coming to you from the Hickson campus of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we'd love to have you come and visit us. But if you're not in the area, please go to OurSundaySchool.com to see all of the resources we saw in class. Well, good morning, and welcome to Our Sunday School. I'm glad you're able to be with us this morning. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 9. Uh, we were just talking here in the living room about uh, the odds of finishing uh, next week with Mark chapter 9. And it'll be about three months that we'll have spent in Mark chapter 9. And uh, I, I won't tell you who, but someone was bemoaning the fact that it was taking so long, to which I responded, uh, You hadn't seen anything. Wait till Mark chapter 14. That's actually a long one. So uh, if you got your Bibles or in Mark chapter 9, I would encourage you to head over to uh, oursundayschool.com uh, where you can get a copy of today's handout. Um, they're talking about me on the couch now. It makes it even more fun. You can get a copy of today's handout, and then I would also encourage you to grab a copy of Mark's Gospel. Uh, we will be in uh, Isaiah for just a smidge this morning. So if you got a copy of the Old Testament too, that would come in handy. So good morning to some folks that are already on. Oh, Albert has posted his time early this morning. I didn't see that until just now. Good morning, Albert. Well done. Room 206 is up. Fantastic! Thank you again, Jessica, for that. Good to see uh, Danus and Brittany. Uh, The barbers are here and ready to learn. Excellent! Somebody spent their extra hour well. So the Velosans, the Cheryl is here. Hey, Miss Nancy, good to see you from Oak Ridge. And my friends in North Carolina are here. The Graves, fantastic, good deal. So again, if you got your Bibles, we'll head over to Mark chapter nine. Uh, I will tell you before we uh, read all of Mark chapter nine. I want you to listen for connectedness of words and concepts in Mark chapter nine. Uh, If you if you have done any study or thinking about the text that we're going to be looking at, Lord willing today, uh, verses 42 through 50, and we'll talk about why there's not nine verses in there, uh, then you'll have kind of already started to question and think through well, is this a continuation of the beginning of Mark chapter nine? Is this a new topic? Is this a new concept? Uh, and I'll, I'll once we read through all of Mark chapter 9, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the assumptions that I'm making and why I'm making those assumptions as we teach through uh, this last section in Mark chapter 9. So let's uh, grab our Bibles and read through Mark 9. And as we are turning over to Mark 9, I'd encourage you to think about our, our question that we ask each week. So what is God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark that we have studied so far? So what is God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark we have studied so far? All right, let's read Mark chapter 9. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, So good morning to some more folks who have joined us here. Say uh, welcome to the Arnold's, the Johnson's, some more folks in room 206. Again, thank you, Jessica, for doing that. So we've got Day Click, uh, the Ayers, fantastic. Uh, and then Jay and Becky Arnold are on as well. Awesome. Good deal, guys. Thanks for being here today. So we're in uh, the last section of Mark chapter nine as divided up by the ESV. Uh, so a couple of big questions about this section, and I, I told you a minute ago I was going to you know, ask some questions, tell you my assumptions, and then give you, as we kind of go through the text today and next week, Lord willing, the the reasons or the justification behind those assumptions. I, I find it helpful sometimes for, for people who are teaching the Bible to state their assumptions up front as opposed to trying to figure them out as you are navigating and listening through a lesson, uh, one, so that... You can be, be really clear and transparent about what you believe about this text. And two, so that your thought process as you're going through can then evaluate the assumption against the actual text versus I wonder what, where, where we're going and how this is going to work. And I will tell you my, my default setting is to try to stay as close to the text as possible, um, even when the text is uh, very, very hard to understand. Uh, and I would argue that in passages like this, specifically verses 49 and 50, which I would, I would posit are some of the most difficult and challenging verses to understand in all of Mark's gospel, uh, having a, a steady, constant process that we use to look at and think through and evaluate what are we going to do with Scripture is very, very handy. So if you'll go to the last page of your handout... Uh, down at the bottom, so this be page 311, down at the bottom. Our homework each week is also our process. So this is the process that I go through to teach a lesson. So uh, pray for help in understanding Mark. I hear Mark multiple times, so read and read and read and listen, listen, listen. Uh, think about Mark often, so day and night. So try to think about it uh, in the morning, in the evening, during the middle of the day. Uh, really roll these verses over and just get really familiar with the text itself. Uh, talk with somebody, uh, either dead or alive, somebody that's written something down in the past somebody that is uh, with us in the present uh, about these verses and how we engage with them. What's a, what's a right way to do this? What's a dangerous way to do this? Uh, what are things that others have learned that the Spirit of God has shown to others that, that we can benefit from? Right. This is the, um, if you need a, a mental picture, this is the standing on the shoulders of giants to do uh, things that we don't have to start from, A says, ah, every single time we open up the Bible. Uh, sharing our insights about Mark. So engaging with others, not only asking questions and learning, but, but sharing, I think this is right. Do you, do you think that I have this right? Do you think that this is something that is true and good? And that really is what we're doing today, sharing the insights that we have found uh, about Mark. And then obviously inviting a member and a non-member uh, to engage with us in this process, because we is bigger than just me, And whoever is listening. We should be growing on a regular basis. So let's look at some questions real quick. Uh, So for the first question you might want to ask about a section like this is, is Jesus speaking literally? And should we interpret and apply this text literally? And I will tell you my default setting is yes, until a literal reading, rendering, understanding of the text leads you to a place that is the opposite of another text. So Jesus is using a what we believe here to be be a, uh, a literary device called hyperbole. So this is speaking in an exaggerated way to bring importance or focus on a specific thing. So uh, is is this text to be taken literally? I would say my assumption is no, uh, because this would directly contradict many passages in the Old Testament about not disfiguring yourself, about not marring God's image, about not uh, belittling or denigrating what God has created. So this is a, uh, if, if, if you were to uh, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, pluck out your eye, uh, you would then be marring God's image. This is not something that God uh, promotes in the Old Testament in any way, shape, or form. And it wouldn't be rational or reasonable of us to believe that Jesus wants us, in order to prevent sin, to uh, mar our bodies and to cut things off. Because we know, and this is actually taught in Matthew's Gospel, that even if even if we were to cut our hands off, we could still sin. Even if we were to cut our feet off, we could still sin. Even if we were to cut our eyes out, we could still sin. These things are not what keeps us from sinning. Our, our heart is the issue here. So first big question, is this to be taken literally? No, this is not to be taken literally. Um, I actually couldn't find a single scholar anywhere that suggested this be taken literally. So not only is this, I think, a a reasonable assumption from the text of this would cause us to directly contradict something in the Old Testament, I think it is also a reasonable assumption from church history and how scholars through the ages have approached and taught this particular text. So the second question you might be thinking uh, and this the first one is probably a really obvious question. The second and the third might not be. But the second question for me was, are verses 42 through 48 connected to what has come before, or are they a new setting, a new teaching, a new topic? Uh, and I would argue that, yes, they are connected. There's some very specific word choices that are used, and there's some connecting words that are used. And then the same uh, question about verses uh, 49 and 50, are they connected to verses 1 through 48, and then obviously 42 to 48, or are they a standalone concept as well? And I would have the same answer, yes, uh, they are connected. And the, the reason I would say they are connected is because of these specific words that are used in the text that are connecting these different sections. So you'll see in some Bibles, verses 49 and 50 kind of carved out into their own paragraph. They have their own heading Uh, The ESV doesn't do that and I think that's uh, that's a good way to to show this particular portion. So I'm going to approach this text as if we are not to literally cut off pieces of our body and I'm going to approach this text as if Jesus is continuing a thought that he has begun earlier in Mark chapter 9 with his disciples, and I'll add something to it, that he knows they did. He's addressing, I would argue, the reason for the sweatshirt today, a very specific thing that the disciples are doing, and he's correcting that with these specific teachings. Now, none of that makes any of this easier on the understanding and the discernment side of taking what God's Word says and putting it into practice. Uh, But I just want to be very clear with you. This is what my approach is going to be this morning. All right, so here we go. Verse 42. Hey, good morning, Tim Archer. Good to have you this morning. Um, boy, we got some good news this week, didn't we? Or last week? I am praying that uh, goes to completion, and we hear even more good news in the coming weeks. So, wink to you. All right, verse forty-two. So, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin—now, this is more text than I typically read when we start a verse. Usually, I, I joke—I read a word and then stop. We got to pause and get get through this. But uh, whoever, I, I want to draw your attention to the, to the phrase causes, dot, 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 to sin. Because that, those three words, causes to sin, are actually one word in the Greek, but it would be incredibly awkward if we combined that concept and smashed it at the front of a sentence. Let me, let me show you how it would actually read in Greek. Um, whoever uh, causes to sin. Uh, one of these little ones uh, who uh, believe, like that, is really awkward. And and what happens many times in English translations is that there will be a a Greek word that has a rather complex definition. So the Greek word uh, scandalizo, uh, which looks like our English word scandal, this is a stumbling block or to stumble over something, to trip up, to entrap. In uh, its an extreme form, it can mean to lead to apostasy, to walk away from the faith itself. But this word means to cause to stumble or to cause to sin or to cause to entrap. Or there's some problem associated with this. And there's really there's not uh, there's not one English word as this word is used here in Greek that would capture or that would capture all of the meaning of this word. So it's split up and it's put into two different parts of the sentence. And what I haven't done on the handout is I haven't put the word skandalizo at the end of the sentence as well because that would imply that the word shows up twice in Greek. It doesn't. It only shows up once. So I want to be clear with how to read the handout and how not to read the handout. So whoever causes, and this is a subjunctive, so this is the possibility. This is, this is something that is possible to be done. Whoever causes one of these little ones. Now, the one is singular, the little is plural which is why the ones is plural so Jesus is picking out one of the children that are around him that he was just referring to earlier in mark chapter 9 when he had uh, when he stood up the little one uh, this is right before John talks about uh, ask him the question you know if anyone uh, you know what do we do with a guy that's uh, that's not following us. <clears throat> Interesting to note, John wasn't asking him, what do we do if he's teaching something wrong? I wasn't teaching something wrong. He just wasn't following John. It's a different way of doing something. It's not the question of, is this a right thing or a wrong thing? We have an obligation to call out right versus wrong. Like if something is wrong, we should say that is wrong. If something is somebody is doing something in a, Way that is different than we do it. That is what John is actually referring to uh, here with the uh, thirty-eight through forty-one text. So earlier in thirty-three through thirty-seven, uh, he's he's got he sets them down. He takes a child, he puts him in the midst of them in verse thirty-seven. The thirty-six takes him in his arms and says to them and talks to them about receiving a small child. So this text in verse forty-two implies that there were other children around probably within eyeshot of where Jesus was. So he's called the 12 close to him, but there might have been others kind of roaming around. So Jesus is drawing their attention to whoever takes one of these little ones and causes them to sin, like that's where we're at right now. I want you to get the setting as we're going through this. So whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, so the words in me are actually not in the text, uh, but the word believe is a present active participle. So this is someone who has a habit, a lifestyle of belief. Uh, And if you want to kind of hone in a little more on how old was the child that Jesus picked up, well, it's old enough to be held in Christ's arms, old enough to stand up on his own, and old enough to have it a habit of faith. So how old is that? I have no idea. Well, it wasn't a (laughs) two-year-old. Can't really have a habit of a lifestyle of faith as a two-year-old, right? For anybody who has ever met a two-year-old knows that that's not really going to be consistent. So whoever calls is one of these little ones who believe uh, in me to sin. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nitpick here for just a second. Imagine that, right? Julie's laughing at me. Uh, your translation, if you have a different translation other than the ESV, the ESV has a little footnote G here. Uh, it says to stumble, which is the other way to translate uh, this word, uh, scandalizo. It's used in 43, 45, and 47. So whoever causes uh, one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, the ESV says it would be better as if it were a future Oriented kind of a thing, and the reality is the Greek word I may here is in the indicative. It's a it's a statement of fact. Uh, it, it better would be rendered it is better. It would be a, a much more present tense, right now statement of fact, which is actually how the ESV renders this in the other two. Um, so there are three different concepts that are uh, three different uh, forms that are presented. One form three different times in this particular text. So there's a um, if something happens, it would be better rather than doing this. So this is three different things that are going to happen with the hand, with the foot, and with the eye. And Jesus is beginning to set up this framework with verse 42. So it, it is better. Uh, there's actually two words for better, kalos and melon. So there's uh, a goodness associated with it and a greatness associated with it. So think about it as something is either good or not good. Right, So the the good here. And something is either a lot of it or not a lot of it. So this is good and a lot of it. So this is a lot of good. It would be really, really better. It would be bigger. It would be much more good if, for him, if, top of page uh, 307 in your handout, if a great millstone. Now, I don't know about your house. My house doesn't have a millstone. Not something we do. We engage in step number 327 in the flour making process by clicking uh, a button on Instacart's website that says, bring me a, I don't even know the unit of flour. What unit of flour do we buy? Is it a pound? Do you know? I don't know. A bag. Bring me a bag of flour. (laughs) This is where I'm at in this process, right? I am so far removed from a millstone. Had to Google this. I I thought I knew what it was and it turned out I was right. Uh, but what really, made me, what really made me laugh was the word great here, because I, I think of, when I think of the word great, my brain just immediately goes to megas in Greek, you know, like a megaphone. This is a great phone. It's something that's going to amplify. It's not the Greek word. This is the, the Greek word onokos, uh, which means belonging to a donkey, which was not my first inclination when I read this definition. And I thought, belonging to a donkey, what in the world? And uh, if you keep reading the definition, it says large so as to be turned by a donkey. You you need a millstone. This is a millstone so big, you need a strong animal to push it around to set on top of grain that is going to grind the grain down so that you can then turn that into something you can use to bake with. So this is a donkey-sized millstone. Now, uh, what I didn't know is that you, there are different sizes of millstones, which kind of makes sense. It makes sense that the first one wouldn't be something that somebody would have constructed, It'd be so big you had to have an animal to move it. But uh, the first ones are very, very small, almost like a mortar and pestle where you just grind and grind and grind and grind. And the next level up is uh, um, I don't know the English word for it, I know the Spanish word for it. It's El Matate. It's our favorite uh, Mexican restaurant right up the road here. And if you go in El Matate here in Hickson, you walk in the door and you look immediately to your right, there is an El Matate right there on the counter, and it's a corn grinder. And it's basically you, you take the, whatever uh, grain you've got, whether it be corn or wheat or whatever it is, and you put it on this device and you just roll back and forth, and it'll just grind it up. So there's different sizes of this. And Jesus, in his description, is saying, this is the big one. I'm not saying a small little something that you could, you know, if you got thrown into the sea with this tied around your throat, you'd be able to be okay. No, no. No, no. This is the millstone that would weigh a lot. Like, you probably had to have animals to get it into place, even. And then another animal to move. This is massive size. So it'd be better for him if a donkey-sized millstone... Uh, were hung around his neck. and the Greek word here is tracholos. This is a trachea. Uh, so to be hung around his throat and he were thrown. Now I want you to look at the look at the tenses and the uh, the, the morphology here. So this throne is Balo. And remember ekbalo is what Jesus does to demons. He out throws, uh, He throws them out of whatever they're inhabiting. This is balo. This is to throw into something. And just to make sure you understood what Jesus was saying, he adds the preposition ice as well, so thrown into. But this balo is a perfect passive indicative. Perfect means it's completed action in the past with the results continuing. So this is already done. So Jesus is saying it would be better right now if he were already in the sea with a millstone around his neck. And the passive means it was done to him. So this is not suicide. This is somebody, somebody or group of somebody's had tied this around, pushed him off into the sea, and that's where he was right now. So think about this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So whoever causes a little one to sin, it would be better if he were past tense already dead that's strong language like really really strong language um, one of the things I started a social experiment uh, a few months ago when I started mark chapter 9 uh, I would put on Facebook a couple of the verses that I was planning to teach on in the next week or so and just to see how people would engage with them if they were uh, popular or if they get likes or whatnot And this past week, I put uh, this text on Facebook. And if you graphed, and I didn't, but I thought about it, Uh, you're welcome, Albert. Uh, But if you graphed the number of likes and shares uh, for the first verses in Mark chapter 9 compared to what I got for the last uh, seven verses in Mark chapter 9, these are not words that we put on pretty signs and hang up in our children's bedrooms. These are not uh, words that we uh, put in frames and hang over the fireplace. These are not words that we have tattooed on our bodies. Because these are strong, clear, plain words from Jesus about the danger of leading little ones astray. There is real problem with leading someone astray from the faith. So just be aware of that. So a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. But wait, it gets better. Verse 43. And, which is one of the reasons... <laughs> uh, so I've changed my settings, Dave. I now get text messages while I teach. Dave just sent me a uh, link to a uh, uh, purchase a five-pound bag of flour on Amazon. So thanks, appreciate that. Uh, so verse 43 starts off with an and, which to me joins what we were just talking about with what's coming next. So this is why I would say 43 and beyond are connected to what was happening earlier. So and if your hand causes, again, we have this to sin split with the word you, use in the middle. Uh, and that's not how it is in, in Greek. So causes you to sin. And again, the causes here in the subjunctives, so it's a possibility. Cut it off. And the, the textual evidence for this being literal is Jesus uses an active imperative for cut it off. He's like, this is a command, cut it off. Right? So if anybody ever asks you, is there a command in the Bible that God gives that you are not supposed to obey? Yeah. I think you're going to have three of them here in Mark chapter 9 because they're hy- hyperbolic commands. They were not t- they were so exaggerated. They were, he's doing this for effect right? They're so exaggerated. They're not intended to be obeyed. So if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So you have this, if some issue take action and then the kind of summary statement after the, at the end of it, it is. So here the ESV translates it not. It would be better. It translates it. It is better because this is an indicative the exact same kind of form. So it is better for you to enter life so enter life. Aren't you already alive? So we know we, we can't be talking about the, the life, because the, the word to enter means to, uh, to go into, right? To start something. You're like, well, we can't be talking about this life. We're talking about starting something new here, right? So better to enter life crippled or rocking about, or maimed in some way, uh, than with two hands, then with two hands, what? Then with two hands to go to hell. So we're going to talk about this go to hell here for just a second. So the go is echo, and then there's actually two Greek verbs at play here, which are, it's kind of unusual that you would put two verbs in a row in Greek, but this is what kind of happens here. So to go, and this is the present active participle. I'm at the top of page uh, 308 now. To, to hold. So this is a habit of holding on to. Which is a bit ironic talking about it. Now you just have one hand, but that's nonetheless. Uh, to go, and this the second word is apricomi, uh, to go off or to go into, to go beside. This is to move in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I'm using her iPad, that's why I'm getting the text messages, Dave. It makes me laugh. Uh to go to hell. And you might be thinking, whoa, so that's what we're talking about going into. So, so let's combine a couple concepts here. To enter life, you're like, wait, so there's life? Because the location is hell, so there's life in hell? Yes, there is life in hell. It is a tormented life in hell. It is an awful life in hell. It is a horrible life in hell, but there is life in hell. So Jesus is saying, if, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. So let's talk about hell for just a second. So if you have a different translation, or if you have a study Bible, you may see a footnote here. And uh, we'll probably end, ugh, what an awful place to end. Um, to, we'll probably end on hell here, because I think it's probably gonna take about that long to talk about Gehenna. But that, this is the word. If you look at the, the word in the brackets here on your handout, uh, this is Gehenna. Uh, it's literally the, the valley of Hinnom, Uh, or Gehenom, Uh, it's a a valley in Jerusalem. And I'm going to read you something from one of my resources, Uh, not my favorite, but it's really helpful in uh, uh, geographical and um, monument-oriented things, uh, things that you could see, things that you could physically experience at the time that Jesus was walking around the earth. Uh, So this is the second volume, as most uh, volumes of Mark are. Um, because they're part of a larger commentary set. It's the Exegetical Commentary on the New Testament by Strauss. I'm going to read you this paragraph on page 413. So um, <clears throat> Gehenna is further defined in the first saying. Uh, let's see, here we go. The term Gehenna, in third sentence down, uh, often translated as hell, comes from the Hebrew Geh, Hinnom, meaning the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, this was the valley on the southern side of the city of Jerusalem, used in Old Testament times for human sacrifices to the Canaanite gods Molech and Baal. Not a good thing to be associated with here, right? So there's a strong association with human sacrifice and specifically child sacrifice. So this is the idea that that I need to please a God who hasn't clearly defined what it takes to be pleased So I'll just do more and more and more until I don't have anything else to forgive. And you look around and you go, well, we had a good harvest last year. So does that mean I sacrifice more this year or less this year? Or how does that work? Well, maybe it's more. Okay. Well, last year we did three bulls. Maybe this year we do three kids. It's awful. And this is one of the beautiful things about Leviticus is Leviticus defined what God expected from his people relative to sacrifice relative to right relationship with him, relative to what his clearly defined activity was that he wanted his people to do. See, we look at the Old Testament and go, oh my goodness, this is crazy, all these laws, all these rules, all these things to follow all the time. And the Old Testament folks would look at it and go, now I know what it takes to please my God. Now I know what satisfies him. And all of those sacrifices point to the one who ultimately satisfies God's wrath. Toward sin and sinners, the person and work of Jesus Christ, who we are studying about in the Gospel of Mark. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But here, without a clearly defined set of laws, what you end up with is, well, I should just sacrifice more. So you end up sacrificing people, which is just horrible. And that's what uh, the Valley of Hinnom was actually known for. So I'm going to keep reading here. So King Josiah this is one of the kings of Israel, uh, desecrated the valley to stop the practice Yay! You go in and you stop human sacrifice, right? Oh, my goodness. And the place came to be used for dumping and burning garbage. Like, oh, okay. Well, it seems like if you have a city, you got to have a place to put the garbage, right? And if you don't have a landfill 20 miles away, what are you going to do with it? You're going to burn it. Okay. In the intertestamental period, this is the time between 400 uh, BC and the time that Jesus walked the earth, the name began to be used symbolically of the place of divine punishment, the fires of hell. According to Matthew 25 41, such hellfire was prepared for the devil and his angels. So, in Jesus' day, if you said Gehenna, the valley of Hinnon, which was right outside the city of Jerusalem, everybody would have known about. It was a place you didn't go. It was a place that was off-limits. It was a place that you went to dump things there. They would actually dump bodies and burn them. I mean, it was a Bad, bad place. Very, very bad place, right? This is what he's talking about. But it became synonymous with hell itself. So this is the word that Jesus used for that. So, all right. So I'm out of time this morning. Uh, didn't get as far as I thought. This might be a three-week lesson. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, would abortion fit in that warning? I missed when you commented on that. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, I so I don't think it would in this context, Albert. If you're asking about uh, causing one of the little ones who believe in me to sin, the condition here that, that triggers this applying is that one of these little ones is a believer. So uh, I would actually argue this is closer to uh, faith, removing the faith of someone, causing someone to doubt to such a degree that they no longer follow after Jesus Christ. So I don't think that there are plenty of places in the Bible that clearly and explicitly condemn anything even remotely close to abortion. I would argue even in the study of Gehenna, we had to deal with this concept of of sinful sacrifice of small children. Uh, But we will pick up, Lord willing, next week with verse 45. Um, Actually, we'll pick up after after the word hell, because we've got to talk about asbestos. So let's take a look at our... Uh, things that we want to do real quick before we uh, dismiss. So if you have any prayer requests today, I would encourage you to write those comments, uh, any of those prayer requests into the comments. If you have uh, an opportunity in the next few minutes to engage and pray for somebody who's not with you, I would encourage you to do that. Perhaps somebody that's commented that they are here watching with us this morning. And then if you have an opportunity to go to either a Stuart Heights campus, uh, Facebook page, YouTube, or website later today for worship, I would uh, encourage you to do that. Uh, and then, Lord willing, we will be back uh, next week and pick up. I won't leave you, hopefully, on the word hell next week, but kind of is what it is. And uh, I miss you guys. I hope to see you soon. And uh, until then, uh, keep studying, keep thinking, keep praying, keep sharing, keep asking, uh, and keep engaging with each other and with the text. Love you guys. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and to our weekly email. You can do both at OurSundaySchool.com.